Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you've ever seen Sum 41 perform live, you know that they seem larger than life. Big, loud, brash, in your face, very punk rock. And out front is Derek Wibley. He's like a man possessed. It all makes for a great, great show. But in person, Derek is life-sized. He moves carefully, takes great care to sit up straight because of a chronically bad back. And the way he drinks his tea can almost make him appear delicate. But when it comes to a conversation about Sum 41 and their career, he's super engaged. As the only permanent member in the history of Sum 41, he basically is the band. So when I wanted to talk about where this group came from and how things have evolved over a quarter century, he's really the only guy I need to talk to. And man, did we talk. This is the Sum 41 story, according to frontman Derek Wibley, part one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Sum 41, of course, with Derek Wibley out front. He's the singer, he's the songwriter, he's the face of the band and the guy by whom Sum 41 lives and dies. And yeah, the band almost died because he almost did. There's a lot to the Sum 41 story, and Derek was more than happy to take me through it. And away we go. Let's start at the, at the absolute beginning. So you're a GTA boy. Mm -hmm. You're from the Whitby area. And... Depends on where, yes, sort so of. Where exactly? <laughs> so I was born and raised in Scarborough. And then moved out to Ajax when I was about 12. So I had most of my, like, my high school teen years were in Ajax. When did you get into music? I got into music probably when I was about six years old. Um, that's when I can remember when I felt like I thought I was going to be a musician. About six or seven years old. What was the thing that did it? I was really obsessed with uh, the Monkees television show, uh, the Beatles music and I just happened to get I don't know if, if everyone got this but in the 80s I remember that when you went to a gas station and you filled up a certain amount you would get these cassette tapes as like uh, you know once you hit a certain amount of gas and it was like there were 50s and 60s revival hits is what they were called I remember those exactly yeah. right so that's what got me into music around 1986 when I was six years old and I just fell in love with those cassettes 
and then the Monkey's Television Show and the Beatles and stuff like that. So also then r soon after that, there was a movie called La Bamba and, uh, you know, the Richie Valens story. And um, that was, I think, in 87. So I would have been seven. And I just fell in love with that movie. And I just thought, I want to play guitar. When did you get your first guitar? Well, I got a fake guitar around that age, about eight years old. And then when I got a real guitar, I was about 13. When did you start actually getting into bands? 13. As soon as I got a guitar, I instantly started playing and just found other people who were kind of playing some instruments around town and just formed a band. You this know, is an Ajax. This is an Ajax. So it was about eighth grade. Did, uh, okay, so the bands that came before Sum 41 were... The first, the early bands, the first band I was ever in was a band called Eternal Death. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after that, it was a band called Chemical Head. And then after that, a band called Casper. And then that band turned into Sum 41. Because you formed the band 41 days into your summer vacation? 41 into the summer vacation, true, yes. That right. was the day the Warp Tour came through our our area. So that would be, let me guess, 96? It was 96, yes. Okay. Yeah. And so who was in the band at that time? At the time when we started Sum 41, it was Steve-O, me, a guy named Grant McVitie, and a guy named John Marshall. I remember there was you and another band called Serial Joe at the time. Yeah. And you guys were both these sort of up-and-coming, ridiculously young bands, ridiculously talented bands that had a chance at doing something really cool. So how did you go from being, you know, a bunch of guys in, in, in Ajax to getting this record deal? <laughs> I think the biggest thing that happened to us was we some, somehow became friends with Greg Nori and Mark Costanzo. So hey, Greg Nori from Treble Charger. Charger. And Mark Costanzo of Len. And both of them came to our very first show. Um, I'd met Greg Nori because I snuck backstage uh, when I was about 16 or 15, something like that, to a treble charger show. And I said, hey, you know, I got this band. We're starting. We have our first show coming up. Would you come to the show? And he said, sure, I'll come. He brought Mark Costanzo. And over the next year or two, they both just kind of helped us out, recorded us, gave us, you know, we did some demos and stuff like that. They gave us some advice and brought us on tour and played. we played some shows with both bands, stuff like that. And now that's moving pretty fast. Yeah. But then I, I, I guess at that time in the 90s, Canadian rock and punk was, was growing really, really quick. I guess so. I mean, to me, I mean, when you're that young, a whole year feels like 10 years. It feels mm -hmm. like a decade. You know, so it felt like we'd been a band for so long for those first two years and done so much, even though we hadn't. It probably blew by really quickly. But it just seemed like we were growing. And also band members were coming and going. You know, it was just Steve-O and I still but so many different bass players were coming in and out and uh, you know stuff like that. We asked Dave to come into the band a couple times and he kept refusing. He was but, with another band. Yeah, he was playing with a much heavier band. And then he didn't join till 1998, you know, so, and then Cohen didn't come till 1999. Let's sample something from those early days. This is a recording from that 1998 demo. The track is Summer. So the first album comes out when, or the first, what was your first release? The first 
real release that was on a record company was Half Hour Power. That was in 2000. Was that with Aquarius? It was with Aquarius, Okay, yes. so Aquarius is this well-known Canadian independent record label that goes all the way back to the 70s at mm-hmm. least. Yeah, with, April you know, Wine. April Wine yeah, yeah. and Corey Hart and <laughs> yeah. so on. Uh, how did you get their attention? We were playing a few shows around town. I know we were playing at the Alma Combo one night, and somebody from Aquarius Records was there. And this was kind of before we had any real attention from any other labels. Um, and they reached out to us, and we'd, we were just in the process of sending out music to record companies. So we had told them, you know, that's great. We're really thrilled that you guys were interested, but we have to be honest, we're also sending stuff out right now. So we want to wait and see what everyone, sort of, what the reaction is. So we did that. Um, the reaction was mixed at first, and then it got better, and then it turned into a bidding war for some reason. Like everything just sort of changed from what it was. Did but you have a manager at this time? Greg Norrie was our manager. Oh, okay. And a lot of, we had a lot of help through Michael McCarty at EMI Publishing. He had signed me as well when I was about 17 um, to a publishing deal. So once he started sending out our demos, that's when record companies started, you know, paying attention a little bit. And, you know, it turned into a bidding war. Like I said, it was mixed at first. It kind of grew. And then all of a sudden it seemed like everybody was on board. But we always remembered that Aquarius was the first one. So even though we signed a record deal for the world with Island Def Jam, we kept Canada for Aquarius. So Half Hour of Power comes out. Mm -hmm. It's well-received. And for, for a first release, I think it was. Yeah, yeah I, I think it was. I remember playing the, the, the heck out of it on the yeah, radio. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and then, so I guess much more touring came, mm-hmm. followed by what? Well, you know, Half Hour Power kind of got us on the road, and we started touring North America, both Canada and the U.S. And while we were sort of doing that, we were planning on what was going to be our full-length album, because Half Hour Power was only an EP, basically. And... You know, we took a quick break in 2000, mid-2000, maybe late 2000, and went in and recorded All Killer No Filler. Um, it took a bit of time. It wasn't just in one go. We had a couple, you know, periods of recording and touring, recording, touring, through all throughout 2000 and early 2001. All Killer No Filler comes out, and again, well-received. Yes. Not only in Canada, but internationally. Yeah, that was the record that kind of just went everywhere um, really quickly, which we were, you know, totally surprised by. We had no idea that that was going to happen. You were part of sort of like the end of the punk rock revival of the 1990s and the beginning of this whole um, indie rock revival in the early 2000s. So you really mm-hmm. hit a wave and you managed to catch it. How many copies did uh, uh, that album sell? <laughs> I've never really been good at knowing, you know, statistics of what things have done. But we're talking millions. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know, but I've been told it's around like 4 million or something. Something like that. (laughs) Pretty good for some young guys coming out of Ajax. Yeah, we were 20 and 21 years old. Japan was apparently very good to you, wasn't it? Japan took off with Fat Lip right away, yeah. More on Sum 41, as told by Derek Wibley, coming up.
This is a two-parter on the complete history of Sum 41, and the guy leading us through the story is frontman and co-founder Derek Wibley. All Killer No Filler comes out, then we move to 2002, and you've got another album, which is the Does This Look Infected record, which has got one of the grossest album covers I've ever seen in my <laughs> <Yeah>. life. <laughs> and, and that one was also really quite huge. Yeah, that was so, I mean, Does This Look Infected was a funny record for us because we didn't give ourselves any time to make a new record coming to try to follow up from All Killer. There was no time. We had tours booked, and we had six weeks off in the middle of it. And that's when we went in and just knocked out this record. I mean, I, I wrote the songs really quickly. I had a lot of stuff that I'd been working on the road. And then I got home, put it together in a few weeks. We went to the studio for a few more weeks. And then we were out on the road. We actually weren't even finished when we hit the road. We still had to, we started recording while we were out in Europe. So we were coming, we, I remember we played Reading and Leeds Festival. And we'd have to drive straight back and go to London the next day. And we were in Olympic Studios finishing up. Uh, does us look infected there? This is starting to take a toll. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit. The title "Does This Look Infected" comes from just looking at that cover. We had the cover before we had the title, and it came down to the last second. I remember we got a call. We were on tour, and the record company said, "If you guys don't finally pick an album title, this record's not coming out this year because we need to know now for artwork and for manufacturing and all this stuff." So we just said, "Okay, give us an hour." And the four of us sat around with the cover, looking at it, and we threw out a bunch of different things. And "Does This Look Infected" made us all kind of chuckle, and we just thought. All right, that's probably it then. The Hell Song from Does This Look Infected, the third Sum 41 record. It came out November 26, 2002. Coming up, getting caught in the middle of an African civil war and a phone call from Iggy Pop as we get more from Derek Wibley on the history of Sum 41. By the end of 2002, Sum 41 was an international multi-platinum act. They were big enough so that when Iggy Pop started calling around for guest help on his Skull Ring album, the phone rang. Green Day is in for a couple of songs, some was told. Are you in? Of course they were. What was it like working with Iggy Pop? <laughs> Iggy Pop was a great experience and sort of a privilege. I mean, just to to be able to just talk to him on the phone once is makes it all worth it. You know, um, I remember the very first time we spoke, we chatted for about 45 minutes. And within two minutes of that call, I just remember thinking like, man, I just feel like we've known each other. He's so comfortable and um, he's just so cool. And I just felt like I'd already met him before, you know, and at the end considering of that, his history mm -hmm. and everything that he's gone through today he's just this most this wonderfully pleasant man with this incredible background mm -hmm. and he's he is a joy to talk to yeah he's great he is great and um, we still talk time to time um, you know sometimes we'll see him sometimes we're lucky enough to be on the same festival uh, together we saw him we played together in 2016 in France together and that was the last time I saw him um, but I've spoken to him since then a little bit. Um, and yeah, he's just one of those guys. I feel like it's a privilege to know him. Derek and producer Greg Norrie co-wrote this track with Iggy. It's called Little Know-It-All. Little Know-It-All. 
Iggy Pop and the co-write commissioned with Sum 41 for his 2003 album Skull Ring. That's little know-it-all. Back to Derek Wibley and Sum 41. Their 2004 album was called Chuck. And uh, now let's just get Derek to talk about it. So we get to um, the Chuck record, uh, which before you get there, you end up in the Congo. That's right. Well, so if we ended up in the Congo sort of near the end of the recording of Chuck, but before it came out. So we had done a lot of recording. We'd had planned to go to the Congo to shoot this documentary on the effects of the Civil War. We went with a group called War Child, and we were to come back and sort of finish up the album. So, yeah, I mean, when we were in the Congo, that didn't go the way we thought it would. So where were you in the country when everything started going sideways? I mean, we were just, you know, deep in the center of Congo. Um, and the civil war that had, you know, there was a ceasefire for about a year and a half there. Um, it just happened to start back up about 10 days into our trip. And we were just caught in the middle of it. You know, when you we say were, caught in the middle, what does that mean? We were literally caught in the middle of it because where we were staying, which was a hotel-ish type of place, um, but on one side of the hotel, there was one rebel group, and on the other side was another rebel group fighting back and forth, and we were literally just in the middle of it. So the hotel, and we, we had to keep evacuating each room and just you know moving out to all these different places because the hotel just kept getting hit with mortar rounds and uh, RPGs and you know straight bullets and stuff like that. I, I can imagine that. <laughs> a little, little freaky. It was. I mean, it, I would say it made for a good documentary. But uh, it was definitely, I didn't think we were going to make it out, to be honest. I really didn't. And Chuck was your UN minder. Chuck was the guy. He happened to be at the hotel with us. He was with the UN, and he was the one who kept moving us around and keeping us safe from room to room. There's 44 of us there. And he would wrangle us all together and tell us when we could go out. He would go up onto the street and then come running back in, you know, when the fighting would start back up. And he just kept moving us around. And finally, after three days of that, he organized you know, armored tanks to come in to the hotel and get us out of there. And this is where you said, dude, if you are successful in evacuating us, we will name our next album after you. Exactly. We were, you know, I remember we were sitting there and we'd been in it for about a day and a half. And we just, I remember saying to him, Chuck, if you get us out of this, we're going to name this record after you. So now we can get to recording the Chuck album, which was recorded in a bunker-like studio across the street from the Hells Angels headquarters in Toronto. Yes. And I remember going through uh, visiting you and thinking that, wow, this is a really heavy record, um, but it's really, really melodic at the same time. Uh, did the experience in the Congo have anything to do with the intensity of the record? I don't know how anything that we go through or I go through comes out in the music, but I can only assume that it does. I don't really ever think about it because whenever I write music, I just pick up a guitar and start writing and whatever comes out comes out. So I think these things must have some impact somehow, but I don't really analyze it or think back to it. I just move on. You know, it's just a song. Great. Let's get it done. Move on. Sometimes it's so crazy that nothing can save me. But it's the only thing that I have If you believe it's in my soul 
By the mid-aughts, Sum 41, generally, and Derek Wibley, specifically, were starting to run out of gas. It wasn't the music. It was their bodies. Derek was 25, and things were starting to fail. When did things start to really take a toll on you? That's hard to say. I think um, I think the the constant cycle of touring and recording um, does get to you at some point. I don't know when it does, though, because it be, it's so normal to you. So you become so used to it. Um, I think the thing that took the biggest toll on me was, um, and I'm not sitting straight, the biggest thing that took a toll on me was having a back injury. And that is what really started to... Was really, that in Japan? That was in Japan. That was the second time, though. I had injured in Canada in 2007 on stage. And in Japan, I got attacked at a bar by some guys who I don't know. Okay, let's go back, because yeah. uh, I want to focus on that. But let's, yeah. let's so what, what's wrong with the back? Well, I, just, I have a herniated disc, hmm. um, which is not a crazy injury, but it does, the way, for whatever reason, they're, they're always different for everybody, right? So the way mine works is it goes straight out towards my spinal cord. So when it, when it came out, it was most unbelievable pain, but it also just kind of cut off the function to my legs for a while. So you, if it goes out, it hits those nerves, and it just kind of makes my legs useless for a while. Mm-hmm. And I, if we're on tour, it means I have to go home. And if, if I'm anywhere else, you know, I could be stuck there for a while. Do you know what caused it? The first, I don't know why it happened, but when I first found out, well, when it first happened, it was on stage in Calgary. So, you know, all those years hanging a guitar around your neck can't have, can't I, have helped. I think it has to do with, you know, jumping around with a guitar mm. for years and years, night after night. Um, probably what did it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's actually very manageable as long as I take care of it. Um, when I was younger, I didn't know how to take care of it. I didn't want to take care of it necessarily. I just kind of wanted to keep going, doing what we're doing. And I knew that, uh, you know, a few drinks actually makes all the pain kind of go away. You know, um, and that I would say was probably what took the more of a toll, say, um, on my body and uh, mentally too, because it really brings you down. Um, and the fact that I just wasn't taking care of it properly either. Well, you, you know, you're on tour, you're living in LA, living the LA lifestyle. <laughs> I don't know if that LA had anything to do with it. I think I would have probably been the same no matter what. So this is, uh, when did the back first go out? It was in Calgary, right? Calgary, 2007. 2007. Yeah, and it got better, and I was actually okay for a few years. And then what happened in Japan when, when you got beat up? I still don't really know what happened. I was just, uh, it was a, a friend of ours has this bar we've been going to for, you know, since we've been going to Japan. It's a really tiny, small little bar, kind of like the Bovine in Toronto. And we were just hanging out. There's very few people in there. And I was waiting for the bathroom and out of nowhere, it just kind of felt like a train hit me. And just two or three guys just jumped me from behind and, you know, just kind of beat the shit out of me. And then I just sort of, I tried to get up and realized I couldn't stand and what, it, you know, that my back injury was back. And we had to pretty much cancel the rest of the touring for that period of time. I went home, tried to deal with it as best as I could, probably drank too much through the pain, and then just got back out on the road because that's what we do, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it never really was healed, and I just kept trying to tour through it, and it would act up a lot. And it would just be kind of a chronic pain um, that I just didn't deal with. You know, I was on tour so much mm-hmm. and just thought I could just drink the pain away. And Sum 41 went on a meteoric rise from 1996 through to 2005. 
but you could only burn that hard, that bright for so long. Something had to give, and something did give. On the second half of this program on the history of Sum 41, Derek Ribley will talk about his hospitalization, his recovery, and rehab. We'll discuss lineup changes, and we'll go through how Derek battled back. Or rather, he'll go through all that, because he's very open about his experiences and is a great storyteller. Meanwhile, all these programs are available as a podcast. Just subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. Binge away. Everything is free, of course. You can find out more about music news and opinions through my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it every day. There's the free daily newsletter. That goes along with it, so you won't miss a thing. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram all the time. Any follows are welcome. Email to alan at alancross.ca. And we'll see you next time with more from Derek. Tactical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.